from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Work and Life on Business Radio. Welcome to Work and Life. It's that conversation in which we explore everything related to work and the rest of your life, your family, your community, our society, this, this world that needs us all to serve in some way to heal, and your private self, your mind, body, and spirit. I'm your host, Stu Friedman. I am the founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project and of the Wharton Leadership Program. I now run a management consulting and training company. It's called Total Leadership, and you can visit totalleadership.org for information on what we do to help people and organizations find better performance and a greater harmony among the different parts of life. Got an audio course now based on this uh, approach to creating meaningful change in the world. It's called Four Way Wins. You can find that on Himalaya.com. New episodes of this show premiere Thursdays at 5 p.m. Eastern here on Sirius XM Channel 132. And you can follow us on Twitter at SXM Business, as well as me at Stu Friedman. Um, one thing I wanted to let folks know, this is the first show that we are recording in 2022, beginning our ninth year on air. And I'm just very grateful to be here and especially to Patty Hall, our producer, who makes the whole thing happen for us here at Sirius XM Morton Business Radio. Um, I'm going to be focusing at least some of uh, our efforts throughout this year on the issue of climate action. So stay tuned for more uh, to- topical content on that issue woven throughout the um, conversations that we'll be having over the days ahead. Another thing I've been working on as a kind of side project is songs about going home. That's popular music, um, rock, folk, R&B, um, all kinds of music uh, that have the word home in it. So here's the thing. I, I, I was studying last year a course on um, Bruce Springsteen's music, and also I was reading a course, um, I was reading Ulysses and a course on James Joyce's Ulysses. And the idea of home was very much present in this, uh, in this work, and it got me to thinking about songs about going home. And so I've been compiling, now I have like hundreds of songs about home, and I'm inviting you to participate in this project. Um, if you want to learn more about it, you just write to me, friedman.wharton.upenn.edu. It's really been a lot of fun. A lot of people are involved in it. Or you can just find me on LinkedIn. All right. Uh, how's that relevant to what we're talking about on the show today? Well, you'll see. Uh, this is a show I've been really looking forward to because we're going to be speaking with uh, a scholar who knows a lot about an idea um, uh, an aspect of living that is important to every one of us all the time in all the different parts of our lives. You know, have, have you ever wanted to contribute an idea at a meeting or in a conversation where you felt you were going to be ignored or rejected because you didn't have seniority or you, your skin wasn't the right color or you didn't have the right gender identity um, or you were somehow feeling left out or that it just wouldn't make a difference? Um, what have you been thinking about where you might want to be able to contribute and have more influence in the world where you're just not doing it? Maybe it has nothing to do with climate action. Who knows? Political action of some other sort, or just trying to get something done with other people at work or in your home, in your relationship, uh, in the connection among those two. Uh, today's guest says that, and she's shown with evidence that you have more influence than you think. And that's the name of her recent book. You have more influence than you think. And it is a brilliant and extremely readable take on the, the world of influence uh, that we're going to be exploring together. I am delighted to introduce Vanessa Bonds, who is a social psychologist and professor of organizational behavior at Cornell University. Vanessa, welcome to Work and Life. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to be here. It's great to have you here. And let me say, nice shirt. <laughs> okay, Vanessa and I can see each other. We're on Zoom. And she's going to explain to all of us why I just made that compliment to her and what impact it might have had or didn't have 
uh, as we get into the conversation. Let me just say a little bit more about you, Vanessa, before we get into uh, our conversation. Uh, Vanessa Bonds, that's B-O-H-N-S, holds a PhD in psychology from Columbia University and did her undergraduate work at Brown University. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times, Harvard Business Review, and her research has been featured by the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and NPR's Hidden Brain. Uh, Vanessa, why did I just say nice shirt? Wow, that is a little inside joke from the book, of course. And it basically is an example of the kind of influence I talk about in the book. So often when we hear, you know, a book about influence or a resource on influence, we think of these very sort of formal types of influence, you know, how am I going to actually persuade someone to change their mind? How am I going to stand in front of the room and be a great orator? But the kind of influence I talk about in the book is the kind of influence we exert every day over people. And one example of that is in the compliments that we give to people. And so we actually ran some studies in my lab together with another researcher, Erica Boothby, looking at whether we underestimate our influence when it comes to simple things like giving someone a compliment. And the compliment we had our participants give in that very first study was to go up to strangers and say, hey, I like your shirt. Simple compliment, standard compliment. All right, so Vanessa, what impacted my saying it to you in this context have. You know, I, I'm always surprised that it actually works to make someone feel better, even in these kind of contrived contexts when it's mm-hmm. kind of, you know, silly and, uh, you know, you might question whether it's really genuine, but unbelievably, it still feels kind of good. And that's what we found in our studies is that when we ask people, you know, how good do you think this compliment is going to make someone feel? Mm -hmm. And then they went out and they gave these compliments. And then we asked the people who were complimented, how good did this compliment make you feel? They had significantly underestimated how good that compliment would make someone else feel. And even in this case, you know, I I used to see this uh, website where you could put in your name and it Mm -hmm. would spit out compliments at you. I would just type in, you know, you could type in Stu. And it just, you know, with basic text says, you're looking wonderful today, Stu. You are so brilliant, Stu. Wait, and- <laughs> so this is just an algorithm spitting out things that it somehow knows I would want to hear? It's just compliments anyone would want to hear. And oh you know gosh. that you type your own name in, you know, it's a computer algorithm. Yeah. And yet it has this strange experience of just making you feel good. Well, even knowing that. that's way too scary for me to even contemplate for so many reasons, but um, what is essential about what you've just said, of course, is that, you know, the big insight um, and the way that you developed uh, practical implications from it in this book is that we underestimate the power that we have in, in influencing other people. And that's not a matter of gaining more influence over people, uh, but it is rather using what you already have. Do I have that right? That's exactly right. Uh, I think we often think, you know, I need to learn how to be more influential. I need tips for how to speak more clearly or more persuasively or ways to ask for things that'll get to yes. And in fact, a lot of the research shows that we are constantly influencing people without using tips or tricks just in everyday life by stating our opinion you know, without even trying necessarily to persuade, just by asking for something and someone agrees to it, even if we're not sort of, you know, making this big effort to try to get to yes. Uh, And so, yes, you know, we, we don't necessarily need to gain influence because we have it already, but there are these psychological biases that prevent us from seeing the influence that we're constantly having on people. And that's what your book uncovers, what those biases are and how to see them and how to, how to work around them, really, how to compensate for those biases so that you can have more of the influence that you really want to have or not have. Um, one of the things that I get from reading your book, which is a message I hear from many people in different aspects of my life on a regular basis, is that I should speak less. Exactly. Right. So if we focus so much on gaining influence Mm -hmm. and we don't sort of recognize the influence that we're constantly having, that can mean in some cases that we are impacting people in ways we might not want to, ways Mm -hmm. we may unintentionally be, you know, saying things that offend somebody or discourage somebody 
or prevent other people from sharing their opinions with us because mm -hmm. we've expressed our opinion, you know, so forcefully. And so by taking a step back and recognizing our influence, it means that we can use it in cases for good. And it also means that we can make sure that we avoid situations where we might be unintentionally using it in ways that are counterproductive and even harmful. Can you think of a, a recent example in your own life where that might have happened? Let's see. I definitely apply this quite a bit to situations with my graduate students. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think in a lot of careers, you know, you make your way up and all of a sudden, you know, in my example, I'm a tenured professor, right? But I still, in many ways, feel like a grad student. I forget that when I'm talking to my grad students, I have this sort of seniority where if I make a simple suggestion, you know, oh, you might want to try this to them, they hear it as a clear order. And then they may spend days working on that suggestion that in my mind, I was thinking, you know, if it doesn't work out, don't worry about it, you know, give it five minutes and think about it. And if you come up with a different idea, let me know, you know, all that is happening in my head, because I think we're kind of equals chatting about ideas. But they take the things I say as kind of, you know, definite orders or things that they absolutely have to do hmm. sort of the right path. And so, so that's something I've tried not of, to do. I'm sorry, whenever there's a kind of a status differential in some sort of hierarchical form, whether it's because of uh, actual, you know, authority structure in an or a formal organization or informally in so many different ways, uh, when you're on the upper uh, side of that um, hierarchical boundary, uh, it's easy to lose sight of how other people are seeing you. Exactly. Right? Yeah. And I have a colleague who likes this expression. When you're in power, your whisper sounds like a shout, mm -hmm. right? To the people who aren't in power. Hmm. But we often don't realize that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's that's an important aspect of, of any kind of leadership training uh, where you become more aware of the impact that you're having on the people around you, particularly those who look up to you whether it's at home or at work or anywhere. Uh, you know, for, for just a second here, I want to take a time out and remind listeners, this is Work and Life on Business Radio, Sirius XM Channel 132. I'm your host, Stu Friedman. It's great to be with you here in the new, uh, newest month of the new year. So much ahead of us that we have to explore and work through and find ways of making better in the world together. My guest today is uh, Vanessa Bonds, and she's kind of helping us do that. She's a professor of organizational behavior at Cornell University and author of the marvelous book, really so helpful, evidence-based, um, practical ideas for how to have a better impact on the world with uh, what you already have. It's called You Have More Influence Than You Think. I urge you to get it and learn from its wisdom. Uh, Vanessa, for decades now, I've been teaching a course that I referred to at the top of the show called Total Leadership, which is about growing as a leader and creating harmony among the different parts of your life, your work, your home, your community, and your private self. And, and I've been advising students and clients around the world uh, on the central piece of what we do in this work is uh, stakeholder dialogues. That's what we call them, conversations with the important people in your life about what you really need from each other uh, and to, to gain greater awareness of what your mutual needs and expectations are. And then finding creative ways to experiment with new ways of getting things done that serve your interests and the interests of those around you. Um, you know, people are often very skeptical about this approach up uh, at the top of our work together um, because they don't think they're going to be able to figure out ways of finding common ground. Um, they just assume a win-lose kind of trade-off mentality, and that's part of what we help people to kind of break through to see that there are opportunities for mutual gain if you explore them intelligently and you discover what it is that other people really, really need, what, not what you think they need from you. And it's, it's almost always different. <laughs> people uh, often say one of the great uh, insights that people gain from going through this exercise, and it's really not that complicated, is that they realize that they have a lot more support and love surrounding them than they had thought by simply inquiring as to what it is that people actually need from them, especially when they begin with, here's what I think is important to you. Do I have it right? And they find out, well, they're partly right and they're partly wrong. Um, so 
it, this then leads them to think about, well, what can I do to create new conditions that enable me to have more of what it is that I want to see happen in the world in a way that other people see as beneficial for them as well? And I think that what you're saying about uh, finding how much influence you have is very much aligned with this approach because, uh, well, you tell me, how is it that um, what your research uh, says about what we know about the impact that we can have with other people in ways that we don't have. What, what's the, the most startling thing that you've seen about what people discover about what they can do that they couldn't think that they could do before they stepped back and thought about the influence that they really can have? Yeah, well, first of all, I love this approach of sharing both people's perspectives. Mm -hmm. uh, and it reminds me of some work by Nick Epley and his colleagues that I talk about in the book mm -hmm. about the difference between taking perspective and getting perspective. So mm -hmm. often we get advice to try to take people's perspectives more and try to understand what's going on in their heads. But when we try to take someone else's perspective, we do that by searching our own heads and we rely on our own experiences, our assumptions about the other people, which may or may not be true. And it right. turns out that we're often wrong, right? Yes. Like you said, we, we guess about what someone wants from us or, you know, whether our goals are aligned and we're often wrong. And so they suggest these researchers who made this distinction between mm -hmm. take per, taking perspective, something else called getting perspective. And it's exactly what you're talking about. It's asking people, right? Actually getting out of your own head and getting into somebody else's head and finding out whether your goals really are as misaligned as you imagine. And a lot of the research that I've done suggests that actually when we do try to guess without actually finding out, right, what someone else is likely to do in a situation or how they're likely to feel, how, much, how they're likely to respond to a request or an argument that we make, we often assume more pushback than we would actually right, get. Right. right. I'm sorry. You say more about that and you, where that where you see that most prominently in in the daily life of uh, the people that you encounter and study and work with. Yeah. So I'd say the most sort of stark example of this is in a number of studies I've done where I've had participants ask people for things and ask them in advance. How likely do you think it is that people will agree to do these things for you? And in the, at this point, we've had participants in our studies ask over 15,000 people for all sorts of different things, whether it be small favors like questionnaires or, you know, to borrow your cell phone or to donate money to charity. And before they do this, they guess how many people will agree to these requests. Then they go out and do it and they tell us how many actually did. And we find that people over predict how much rejection they'll get, right, by about twice as much. So they assume that when they ask for something, they're trying to get to yes, when in fact, what we find is it's actually hard for people to say no when you're asking for something. They actually want to be helpful. They actually feel bad letting people down and saying no doesn't feel good. Mm -hmm. And so this idea in our heads that this is a sort of contentious interaction where I'm going to ask for something and I really need to push to get to yes, a simple request is actually a lot uh, easier right, than we tend to think at getting what we want. So knowing that, and this is across different kinds of asks, right? And different, uh, as you mentioned, so it's it's, it's sort of a, a a universal phenomenon that we tend to underestimate our impact and the uh, willingness that people in our lives or people who we don't know well, even strangers, uh, might be willing to to help us. What does knowing that do? How does that insight? Um, help people to become, well, smarter about uh, what to ask for, how to ask for it, and how to be successful in gaining the support for things that are important to them. I think for one, it is a nice reminder that if we need something, if we need help, or if we feel like we just deserve more in a situation, that asking is actually a really effective way at getting the things we need and want, more effective than we tend to think. So I think a lot of times we hold back from asking for things that maybe we actually should be asking for, or we do something where we negotiate ourselves down. 
So in the book, I also talk about Paul Brest, who was a uh, Stanford Business School dean, raising money, right, asking donors for millions of dollars. And he talked about when he first started doing this, and this shows kind of just how universal this phenomenon seems to be, that he would get into a situation and ask for much less than the donor was willing to give. Right. He would sort of negotiate himself down. He'd go in hoping to ask for a million dollars and say, ah, actually, I don't think they're going to give that much. I'll ask for 800000 Right. And I think a lot of us do that. We worry that if we ask for what we really want or need, that we're going to get more pushback. And so we negotiate ourselves down. The other thing is that we often hint at what we want, right? It's so uncomfortable to ask for the things that we need that we may beat around the bush and say, you know, it could really be useful if someone would do this for me. Uh, and we don't actually come out and ask someone. Someone you mean like me? Are you asking me? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> exactly. And it's there's confusion. There's not clarity. And it's really easy to sort of assume that they're not actually asking you for something. Um, and so that's another way in which we kind of do a disservice to ourselves when we need something because we don't come out and just tell someone, ask someone explicitly, you know, would you be willing to help me with this thing? I can't believe you're asking me to help you with this thing. <laughs> That's just one more example of how you're always asking me for things. What do you do in that situation, Vanessa? Yeah, I think there are asking cases. Asking for a friend. Sure, sure. <laughs> there are cases where people kind of abuse this, but it's such the rarity, right? Most of us hate asking for things and ask for things less than we should. And then there's this kind of subset of people that we all worry that we are, but most of us aren't, who over ask and don't realize kind of the pressure they put on people when they ask for things. But mm. I'd say that's definitely the minority of people. Hmm. An over asker. Yeah. You probably want to stay away from those people, right? <laughs> probably. Or, or learn to set boundaries, right? Learn to say no. Okay. Let's talk about that. Uh, we're coming up on a break in just a, a minute or two, but, um, and it's a topic that many people are interested in learning more about, including me. But let, let's begin it right here. What have you learned about uh, why it's hard to say no? I mean, most of us, I think, can probably figure that one out. But how to get past that, that um, awkwardness and anxiety in saying no to requests from people who want something from you? Yeah, I think, you know, it's so it's kind of amazing how hard it is to say no when you think about it. It seems like such a simple thing. And when we're the ones doing the asking, we tend to forget how hard it is for the other person to say no. But really, when you think about it, saying no is a rejection of another person. And we are evolutionarily wired not to reject other people, not to risk a relationship, right? Potentially offend the other person, potentially suggest that we don't actually care about that other person. So there's a lot of social risk involved in saying no. Mm -hmm. And in the moment that can make us feel guilty and awkward and embarrassed. And it just makes it really hard to find the right words that mitigate that risk. And so it's really about that, finding the space and the words to mitigate that social risk so that we can say no, but make sure that we're still preserving the relationship and showing the other person respect, right? Okay. And so that sounds good. Theoretically, Vanessa, let's, let's talk about an example or two or three or four or five. Like for, for instance, your, your boss wants you to be, you know, immediately responsive to virtual communications throughout your entire pandemic life, no matter what the time of day. And you, because you need to sleep and, you know, have a family life, you know, want to create some time and space boundaries that enable you to do that, which means saying no. Sure. And this is, that's kind of a bigger sort of normative thing that would need to change a culture yeah. that would need to change. Mm -hmm. But I think some of the same things apply, right? You want to communicate when you say no or reject someone or push back in some way you want to communicate. It's not about you. It's not about us. Right. So you say, I really want to do a good job of getting back to you. I really want to, you know, make sure I'm able to give you the things you need and have time to think about them. Right. I, our relationship is really important to me. And this is straining our working relationship. Or I just need time, you know, to myself to be able to do a better job for you. But it's something where the attribution is not about you're doing something wrong necessarily. Although in this case, I would say that they were. So it makes it a little bit more difficult than saying no to like a help request. Um, but the idea is to say, it's not 
that you're doing something wrong. It's not that I don't value our relationship, but I just need this thing to happen. My experience is that when you include in that request to say no, you know, a request that is in essence a rejection, um, that it's helpful to really elaborate on the latter piece of what you just said, which is, you know, here is why my having the time and space to be um, offline from work demands for this period is going to enable me to be more useful and effective in providing you with what it is that you need. Um, and further, uh, you know, let's, let's, let's assess whether or not that's actually true. This is where we get into experiments in the, in the work that I do with, with clients and students. Let's just try it for a few weeks where I'm not available except on an absolutely urgent basis during, you know, say one or two blocks of, of time. Uh, and see, indeed, if my performance doesn't actually improve as a result, would you be willing to try that? And that often opens doors to, um, you know, inventiveness and, and the possibilities of a creative, um, you know, innovation that, that lower risk because it is, on, it, it is being done on a trial basis. Uh, what, do you, what do you think about what I'm saying here, Vanessa? Absolutely. And one thing, you know, we can talk about burnout later as well, because I have a lot of thoughts on this. But, you know, one thing is, I think we tend to really emphasize speed of response, response rate, and not quality of response. And Mm -hmm. I think the more we can sort of shift towards quality of response, like letting people think about things, right, giving them space, uh, the better we'll be will be in the end. Uh, such an important topic uh, that I want to pick up when we come back. We just have to step away for a, a bit. Don't go away. When we return, I'll continue my conversation with Vanessa Bonds about her book, You Have More Influence Than You Think. So stay with us. We'll be right back. This is Stu Friedman, and you're listening to Work and Life on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. You're listening to Work and Life on Business Radio. Welcome back. So glad you're here. This is Work and Life. I'm your host, Stu Friedman. I am the founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project. That's over 30 years ago now. Oh, my gosh. Also, the Wharton Leadership Program, which I also started in 1991. Um, More recently, I am the founder of Total Leadership, which is uh, a management consulting and training company that's dedicated to helping individuals and organizations find creative means to integrate the different parts of their lives in a way that improves performance in all of them. I'm speaking today with Vanessa Bonds. She's a professor of organizational behavior at Cornell University and author of the wonderful new book. It's called You Have More Influence Than You Think, How We Underestimate Our Power of Persuasion and Why It Matters. Vanessa, before the break, we were talking about burnout. Um, What's your top uh, suggestion, recommended action for people based on your research to reduce burnout? Well, so I have some research with Laura Gerge showing that one of the main things contributing to burnout, right, is email overload. This idea that we're constantly connected to our devices. We feel like we always have to respond. If we were talking about the case of, you know, a boss who expects his employees to respond all the time. And so ways in which we can disconnect from work, right, without always being on our devices, on our work email is a really important way to combat burnout. I think that we often put the onus on the employees to be the ones who do that, Mm -hmm. right? And we forget that so much of the norms that are set about the connectivity, about response speeds come from, you know, bosses and from other people who are sending emails on the, and the weekends Mm -hmm. who are sending emails on the, in the evening. And we have some research showing that we tend to think that people expect a response from us quicker than they actually do. So we overestimate mm-hmm. how quickly we need to respond. We call it the mm-hmm. urgency bias. Um, but we also show that if senders do something super simple by saying, you know, I don't need this right away, get back to me at X time. And we start communicating mm-hmm. about response expectations. There isn't that mistake. And yeah. so I think it's not just the, the people getting all the emails who feel like they need to respond. It's the ones sending them at off hours who can help so that- everybody. 
that's a good example of being aware of the influence that you're having that's negative uh, because you're not even thinking about it uh, and is a uh, an important suggestion that we've heard from different perspectives from different experts uh, on the show, um, especially over the last couple of years. So pandemic life, so many of our listeners are, are working from home or in some hybrid form. Uh, what does your research have to say about how people can best navigate you know, the, the new world of work as it is evolving and, and shaping that world in such a way that it allows them to you know, be the people they want to be and make the contributions they want to make to the different parts of their lives. Yeah, it's interesting with the, the shift to hybrid work has definitely changed the way that we are influencing other people. And we have some research showing that at the end of the day, we have the most influence when we are actually face-to-face with someone in the same room. And that's not surprising. And right now, unfortunately, many of us can't be face-to-face in the same room. And so we have to kind of find other ways to have the impact we want to have. Mm -hmm. And we actually find that people tend to think that that means writing out perfectly crafted emails, right? Which in the end, just add to this email churn. People don't read them all the way. And email does not tend to be a particularly effective way of influencing. And in fact, we find that it's much more effective if you're going to, you know, attempt to influence someone, if you're asking for something, if you want to make a persuasive case to actually get on the phone and talk to somebody. It doesn't even have to be Zoom call. I think a lot of us are burned out from all these video calls, but even the phone is that much more effective than sending an email. Even if you feel like you can get everything right in an email and say it perfectly, it's more important for someone to hear your voice. Well, you you get the emotional tenor of uh, the other person. You also have the opportunity, I think even more importantly, to have an immediate uh, feedback uh, from the recipient, from the person on the other side, that you can then immediately adjust to there's So there's much less opportunity for misunderstanding and for inferences to be drawn about what you're saying. You know, if I hear you silent on the other end, I might inquire, um, is there something that I said that you're thinking about, or that might've upset you, or, you know, I can try to try to get clearer about what it is you're hearing when I'm saying what I'm saying. And so are you saying phones better than zoom? Phone is the same as zoom in our studies. So it's really? not, yeah, so it's exactly the same. But it I can't say out- nice shirt if I if we're on the phone. I like I if I see you on Zoom, I can say nice shirt. You can compliment someone on something else, like the great job they're doing or the great points that they make, right? Truth, but nothing about personal appearance. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, uh, do what you can to get closer to what uh, communication theorists call thicker media right? Where there's a lot more information being exchanged, like voice and visual cues. Uh, I'm surprised to hear that Zoom isn't better than phone. We were surprised too, but it turns out that just having that that nonverbal of someone else's voice increases social connection and trust and this idea that I'm actually talking to a real person. And again, that synchronicity you talked about, that fact that you know, you're yeah. talking in real time makes a big difference. But you also have the visual cues on Zoom, and you're saying that those don't add value to the uh, to the you know the social and emotional knowledge that one you know has available to them when they're in a, a conversation or an exchange with one or more people via Zoom as opposed to phone. They might, in other cases, in our studies where you're just okay. asking someone for something, mm-hmm. we don't actually find a difference. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, um, that's fascinating. You know. Uh, Part of what your book is sort of centered on is the idea that we don't understand the um, the ways in which people uh, feel about us, whether they like us or not. Uh, you've you've studied and know a lot about the liking gap. Tell tell us what is the liking gap and why is it so important for us to 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 be more aware of uh, what that research tells us about uh, our social world. Sure. I, I love this finding because it's one of the most reassuring findings I think I've, I've ever come across. And the liking gap is basically the idea that when we interact with another person, we think that they like us less than they actually do. So this has been studied by bringing people together in the lab, just having them have a very basic interaction. It could be a conversation that lasts five minutes all the way up to a half an hour. And then asking both of those people, how much did you enjoy that conversation? How much did you like the other person? How much would you like to hang out with that other person in the future? 
And then asking them both, how much did the other person enjoy the conversation? How much did they like you? And how much would they like to hang out with you in the future? And it turns out that both people tend to underestimate how much that other person liked them and enjoyed the conversation. And the big thing going on there is after we have an interaction with someone, we tend to do this post-mortem where we focus on all the things we feel like we did wrong, right? We are like, did I talk too much? Did I ask enough questions? Oh, I said that thing. It was so stupid. And the other person is not focused on all those were, things. Were you at dinner with me last night with my friends? No, you weren't. <laughs> no. But anyway, sorry, I digress. But yes, of course, that happens to me and lots of people all the time. So what do we yeah. do about that? So I think the first thing is to know that it's an error, right? The liking gap is an actual error. So when we're focusing on all those things, the other person is focusing on all the things that they're concerned about and self-conscious about. And they're like whether their shirt is nice, for example. Yeah, for example. Right. But they're they're walking away feeling like, okay, that was a nice conversation. They're just kind of walking away with a general gist of what you talked about and a general feeling. No one else is paying as much attention to you and the things you're worried about than you think. So that's really the bottom line in your research and in this book. It's not about you. It's not about your sort of foibles, right? People are paying attention to you. They hear that, oh, you have this opinion. But if you stated it kind of awkwardly or not perfectly, they're not remembering that part. They're just remembering the basic part. And how, how do you advise people, if, if you can, to be smarter and more realistic about the social impressions that they're creating? Well, one big piece of advice is to get out of your own head, right? So much of this happens because we're wrapped up in our own head. We're analyzing ourselves. And if a friend came up to us and said, oh, my God, you know, that thing I said in that meeting was so stupid. All of us would probably say, you know, no way, no one even noticed that or no, that that point was fine. The general point you made came across and we're so good at giving that advice to friends. So if we could think of if I was my own friend, how would I advise myself? How would I look at this situation that I'm worried about from a third party perspective? For the most part, people are much better at judging other people and whether, you know, they really did say something stupid than ourselves. Mm -hmm. So the liking gap actually had the studies I was talking about actually had a third condition in one of the studies where they had external observers watch two people interact and they judged how much the two people liked each other. And they were actually really accurate. So it's really about kind of beating ourselves up and being too hard on ourselves. And so if we can think of what would my friend say? You know, what would I tell a friend who was worried about that? That's a good way to sort of get out of our own heads. So much of uh, mindfulness uh, is about, and we, which we've talked about many times on this show um, over the years, is, ab- is about yourself. It's, you know, compassion uh, for the world begins with you. With you. Uh, and, you know, you're saying that in other words, that... Um, to be uh, accepting of and appreciative of our own contributions to the world and how we uh, interact with others uh, with, with a little bit less judgment and more acceptance is, uh, is really so important. And yet it's, uh, it's, it's a hard thing to do. Um, maybe you can say more about that when we come back uh, from this short announcement. I just want to remind people uh, this is Working Life on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Stu Friedman. I'm speaking with Vanessa Bonds. That's B-O-H-N-S. It's about her book, You Have More Influence Than You Think. So why is it so hard uh, to see realistically the way that you are seen by others? Well, for one, you know, there's an actual anatomical biological reason it's so hard to get perspective on ourselves. And that is because we are always looking out at the world through our own two eyes. And what does that mean? We see everybody else and what they're doing that affects us. We see what they're doing that impacts other people, right? But we don't actually see what they see. We don't see ourselves in that scene. Hmm. So we don't see how other people are judging us or what they're thinking. We also don't see the ways in which the things we do are contributing to situations that people are in turn reacting to. And so that's why it's so important to try to get out of our own heads because 
it's so rare for us to have that opportunity. It's near impossible, right? Right, right. So we should be walking around in mirrored images of the world that we are navigating. And maybe, maybe that's what the metaverse is. No, <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't want to go further on that conversation. But uh, yeah, that's, that's a profound and obviously very simple idea is just simply to realize that, you know, y- you only see what you see uh, and that it takes effort. And this is a big part of what, you know, leadership and personal growth systems of all kinds are, are all about is, is taking and acquiring or getting the view of yourself that others have that you can't have without Absolutely. that, without that effort. Yeah. Um, so it, it's really making a commitment to, to acquiring that, that point of yeah. view, which is not natural given how we are built. Um, so might be a little embarrassing for me to say, I don't know much about embarrassment research. So uh, <laughs> that was a silly way of bringing it up. Oh, I'm embarrassed. Wait a minute. Embarrassment. Why is embarrassment so um, such an important aspect of, of who we are in our, in our relationships? Yeah, you know, embarrassment is this really interesting emotion because it is so powerful it really drives so much of human behavior. One of my favorite examples is the immediate reaction so many people have when they start choking in a group of people at the dining table, right? So many people immediately try to exit the situation and go and wind up choking alone in a bathroom where there's no help because it's so embarrassing to be standing there making these faces and choking in front of people, right? And that you might say, you know, how could anyone, you know, do something like that and risk their lives out of something as trivial as embarrassment? And we tend to think of embarrassment as this really trivial emotion from the outside. But in fact, in the moment, it can be incredibly distressing and make us do all sorts of crazy things, right? People say, oh, you know, if I saw someone saying something racist, or if I saw sexual harassment happening, I would stand up and say something about it. In the moment, it's really awkward and embarrassing to do that. Mm -hmm. You're not sure. Should I say something? Maybe the situation is ambiguous. So it really plays a huge role in our relationships. And what's so interesting is we often think of how embarrassed we feel in certain situations around other people, but we forget that those people also feel embarrassed around us, Mm -hmm. right? And they're often manipulating their behavior so that they're not looking awkward around us. And they really care what we think, but we tend to forget that. Yes. Yeah. So, um, you know, we are unfortunately running out of time here and I've got so many other things I want to talk with you about, Vanessa. Let me ask you about gratitude, uh, which is, you know, uh, such an important aspect of uh, any any approach to influence and well-being. Uh, What have you discovered about and how have you incorporated that knowledge uh, about expressions of gratitude and feelings of gratitude and expressions of it as, as a part of the influence puzzle. Yeah. So this is some other research I talk about in the book that again, gets at this idea that influence comes in so many forms that we don't always recognize as influence. It's not always about, you know, persuading someone to get vaccinated or something. We tend to think of these like very hot button issues and consider those true influence, but there are also ways in which we just impact the way other people feel and behave. And one of those is, you know, we talked about giving compliments and just making people feel good in that way. But another one is expressing gratitude. Mm -hmm. And so research shows that similarly to the compliments, Mm -hmm. we tend to underestimate the impact that expressing gratitude to people can have. And so these researchers had people write gratitude letters to people in their lives who they you know, felt really they owed something to, or they were very grateful for something that they had done. It could be teachers, it could be parents, um, mentors. And they wrote these letters and before they sent them, they judged how good these letters would make the person feel. They also interestingly judged how awkward they thought the person would feel receiving these letters. And what they thought was that these letters were going to be awkward, right? You're trying to think of the right words. You feel like you're, you're kind of flustered when you're trying to say exactly what you want to say. But in fact, the people who received the letters felt so good and grateful themselves for getting the letter and didn't feel awkward about it. So all these ways in which we think that, you know, we can't express ourselves quite right. And we're again, harder on ourselves than we need to be right. Simply getting the words out, telling someone what you're grateful for means a lot more than we think to them. 
And, and where does, um, you know, back to a thread in this conversation we started earlier, power differences in, in status hierarchies. Um, you know, there are ways in which my saying nice shirt could be construed as, you know, inappropriate or, you know, intrusive. If I were to say that to somebody on the street, um, you know, I, I could imagine all kinds of, you know, uh, angry reactions. Um, how do you understand where those boundaries are? How do you get smarter about how to navigate, uh, you know, the, 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 um, the social and often murky lines uh, between what you can say and what you can't without hurting someone? Yeah, that's a really important and great question. And I will clarify that in our studies, when we use the, hey, I like your shirt uh, version yeah. of the compliments, it was matched genders. So it was women uh, going up to women and men going up to men. And okay. it was specifically for this reason, because in some cases that could have been misinterpreted. Right. Um, but it's important to remember sort of what compliments do, why compliments feel so good. And what compliments are doing is they're conveying social respect, right? Mm -hmm. We all want to feel accepted socially. We all want to feel like people respect us. And so a compliment is basically saying, I respect you for something. Mm -hmm. And in some cases, you know, a woman telling another woman, I like your fashion choice that can be seen as I respect you. I value you socially in some way, and it feels good. In other cases that could be seen as potentially offensive and disrespectful. Right. So you could imagine someone giving an amazing presentation that's just really thought provoking and well researched. And you go up to that person and you say, Hey, nice shoes. Right. Mm. And in that case, you know, sure, in some cases that might be nice, but it could also be seen as kind of disrespectful because this person just did all this other important, amazing stuff and you didn't compliment them on that. You complimented them on something that seems like they're not being socially accepted for the thing they just put effort into. Mm -hmm. And so it's about sort of recognizing what the sort of boundaries, what would convey respect in this moment. Sometimes it can be totally superficial and that's okay, but sometimes that is actually disrespectful in the moment. And that's where we should hold back and find something else to compliment someone on. I'm glad I asked because that is very instructive and helpful to be mindful um, as often as you possibly can be about whether or not you are indeed conveying respect for the other as they experience it. Exactly. That's great. Um, all right. We are nearing the end of this conversation. I, I do want to ask about climate action. Um, you know, that's part of what I'm involved in when I'm not sitting here talking to brilliant people like you uh, and that many others in our world are trying to take more conscious and deliberate action towards is um, helping to, to make sure that the home we have, the only one we've ever known is going to be uh, hospitable for the generations to come. Uh, I wonder what your research conveys to you about what you can tell us about how to help us to be uh, taking action and persuading others to take action uh, that will indeed uh, move us closer toward the goal of a sustainable world. Yeah, I think this is such a, a great topic, and I'm so glad you're including it this year. Um, so one of the things I talk about in the book, one of the ways that we have more influence than we think yeah. is through something called indirect influence. So there's direct influence, and that is when we actually do something that you know changes something directly. So for example, I can put a solar panel up on my house or in my backyard, and I can reduce my carbon footprint. And that's going to have a tiny effect right on the world, right? It's a drop in the bucket. It really isn't going to make a huge effect. It's a nice effort. But one of my colleagues, Bob Frank, has shown that by doing that, I'm not just having a direct effect, that tiny little effect. I'm also impacting all the people in my neighborhood who are walking by my house every day, seeing the solar panel go up. And as I talk about in the book, noticing that more than I realize, wondering why I'm doing that kind of simulating the decision-making process for themselves and getting themselves that much closer to considering doing it themselves. And so Bob Frank talks about this kind of aerial imagery of clusters of solar panels where one person puts one up and then someone else in the neighborhood right down the street puts one up and you get these little clusters because you have so much social influence over the people, people, particularly people who see you every day, who's in your neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Right. And so we might think, you know, by doing one little thing, 
Uh, if it's putting up solar panels or even doing something simple, like, you know, making sure we recycle um, or, you know, not holding destination weddings, but holding local weddings, all these things are tiny in themselves. But in fact, those things, when we do them, so many people see them and mm. many of those people wind up repeating that behavior. And that's how we have the most influence through these indirect means. By modeling the kind of action that we want to see others take, even if we don't advertise it as, hey, I've got a solar panel here, folks. Do you want to know about it? I mean, actually, one of my neighbors has done that, you know, put up solar panels and said, hey, I just did this. Here's my number if you want to talk to me about it. Vanessa, so much useful knowledge here. Uh, Thank you so much for being my guest today. How can listeners find out more about the wonderful work that you're doing uh, and what's coming next Sure. I have a website that's www.vanessabonds.com. And as you said, Bonds is B-O-H-N-S. My book, You Have More Influence Than You Think, can be found in bookstores everywhere. And uh, I'm also on Twitter and Instagram at Prof Bonds. All right, Prof Bonds. Vanessa, really enjoyed our conversation today. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. It was such a pleasure. And thank you for listening in, folks. You. Much appreciate you being here and taking your time to be a part of this conversation. Please don't forget to tune in next week at 5 p.m. Eastern. And if you have a question about something you heard on the show today, here's my email. It's friedman at wharton.upenn.edu. You can also write to our station at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. You can follow us on Twitter at SXM Business. I'm at Stu Friedman. You can find edited versions of uh, our shows at totalleadership.org. There's also all kinds of other stuff there, free resources, videos, book chapters, articles, all kinds of things that you can use about how total leadership can help you and your company. Um, I did mention at the top of the show, I want to repeat, if you have an idea about a song that includes the word home in it, me and my friends are collecting those and we're categorizing them according to the different meanings that home has. So write to me if you have a suggestion about that. Thanks, Patty Hall, for producing. And our sound engineer, Chris Tooks. I'm Stu Friedman. You've been listening to Work and Life on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 132. 